Sarakaya Chakchurum Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurve Namaha Vande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sahodira Gururai Pushpabanto Chitrosando Tamono Vandeham Shri Ramakrishna Abhaya Charanasako Sukkaro Paramanando Sundaro Subalapriya He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinamandhu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Gandharaganda Namostade Tapta Ganchana Gurangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Vishavhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Shri Guru Parampara Ki Jai Grandara Srimad Bhagavat Ki Jai Continuing our discussion of Srimad Bhagavatam First Canto Chapter 6 <coughs> Conversation between Nard and Vyas in the last discussion, we heard six introductory verses to this chapter, the first of which was Sutta Goswami, <sighs> speaking to the sages about what happened next, and then what happened next followed in the form of Vyasa's further inquiries into the life of Nard, which had been revealed by Nard, mercifully, to some extent in the previous chapter. His life, it is, with regard to his spiritual progress that began at the point of meeting the sadhus. This is the birth, the janma, of bhakti, sadhu sangha. And Vyasa's questions in this chapter about his guru's life included confidential questions, they, are, they constitute somewhat of a confidential inquiry hmm, into the, the spiritual happenings and development of um, his guru, Nard. So we commented to some extent on the idea of the sadhana siddha and how Nard depicts that, exemplifies that, who becomes perfect by sadhana. Uh, here in Sumit Bhagavatam to encourage all of us. <clears throat> and in particular, Vyas wanted to know how he remembered everything from such a long time ago. Hmm? And um, he wanted to know how he left his body, and by implication, how he got the body that he had now, which is obviously very, very different. This is, of course, a very instructive to us with regard to the kind of mukti that the Bhagavatam embraces, it's very obvious from this incident here, recorded in the Bhagavatam, that it includes acquiring a spiritual form, a swarup, as we like to call it, <coughs> rather than constituting merely the um, uh, transcending of one's material body and sense of self that's here today and gone tomorrow, as some people think. Hmm? Bhagavatam has a very different idea. And here in the you know, I think more or less on the onset, we, we start to become acquainted with that. <clears throat> so how his body was received, how he got his swarup and so forth, all described in this chapter. 
<clears throat> but in tonight's discussion, we find that uh, Nard begins to speak and gives a description of how he left home and how he traveled to different places and the culmination of which was to sit. He walked and then sat and what occurred in his sitting. So I'll read Prabhupada's translations, a beautiful uh, descriptive section of the Sanskrit of the Bhagavatam of the time and the place and uh, the travels, if you will, of Narada and uh, the calamities that, uh, the calamity that arose that served as negative impetus for that, that journey. He had the positive impetus, as we know, and this has been emphasized all along, that being the association of the sadhus in his home who were merciful to him, who uh, uh, blessed him with the uh, prashad remnants and uh, engaged him in, in devotional uh, practices and so forth. They initiated him and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Narada said, the great sages who imparted scientific knowledge transcendence to me departed for other places and I had to pass my life in this way. These are of course Prabhupada's translations. The implication here in this verse of course is that he had to pass his life in this way. He had to pass his life in separation from those sadhus who had such a powerful impact on his early life. We know that things that occur to us in early uh, life psychologically have a uh, far-reaching implications and impact into on into our adulthood. Hmm? And uh, it so happened that Narada... Uh, not only did he meet sadhus, which at any time in our life can have a transformative effect. In fact, that is the beginning of our transformation in terms of a movement from material to spiritual. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastrikoya, Lava Matra, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hai, in the language of Krishnas Kaviraj Goswami. It is the Sadhu Sangha that somewhere in our material sojourn has... Um, changed the deck, so to speak, and uh, influenced us in such a way that our life is now moving in a spiritual direction, and that is fostering the further association of sadhus, which is the really much uh, of what causes us to grow in our spiritual life, more so than anything else, perhaps especially in the earlier stages when our practice is, is unsteady. Hmm? The steady examples and the uh, encouraging uh, example and the wisdom and so forth that we get from Sadhu Sangha is uh, perhaps gives it brings us closer to what we're trying to attain to and, and enables us to glimpse that and taste that than our practice unto ourselves. Hmm? At a certain point, of course, we become a sadhu and we become Sangha. Hmm? in this context, 
for others. So, anyway, the point here is that not only is is one influenced in their early life by things that happen to them. I'm in the middle of a discussion with some of my, well, all of my siblings with regard to my mother's estate. That is very interesting, but it um, it uh, has brought to mind some of my, my early childhood, as as it is uh, that one of the siblings seems to be getting in the way of the relationship between our mother in ourselves with regard to her wishes that he has control of her with regard to material properties and and so forth, which were never very much, but symbolically nonetheless. They represent uh, you know, her affection for her siblings and her wanting to them to have them equally and so forth. So I'm reminded of in my early childhood <laughs> now my father's father lived with us and he um uh, excuse my father's mother lived with us, and uh, she, uh, my older brother and I, are very close. We were just uh, 14 months apart, and my sister's maybe a couple of years younger. And so, my father's mother, who lived with us, wanted that the second child would be a daughter of my mother and father, rather than a son. It happened to be me, <laughs> a son. And so she didn't appreciate that, and she. She, um, uh, when my parents would go out, you know, she would be the babysitter, and she would not allow me in the room to watch the new, you know, the new thing, which was the television. I had to be stay outside, and my my brother could come in, and then my then my sister and brother could come in. This was just one type of incident, and she had there was something wrong with her, and that was what what she was like. So, but it caused my mother's affection. For, for me to come out, nonetheless, she, she would find out about incidents. She would be very fiery about that, and, and so, so it wasn't at all uh, negative. But at any rate, <laughs> excuse me for digressing here into such an example. But it's, uh, it, 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 it seeks to illustrate the point that we're all familiar with in, in today's world, where psychology is very uh, important, if you will, in, a, in, in, in my, perhaps more so in an industrial society. Uh, in a disenfranchised kind of family situation that often arises, uh, a, a non-traditional, you know, family kind of situation that um, uh, may be less uh, nourishing and so forth, uh, than if we're in, a, in an agrarian-based society and uh, the kind of society you find around here at Monavon amongst the neighbors and so forth where... Uh, a family unit is more intact. At any rate, um, that uh, the influence of in our early childhood, how it affects us through our life. So Narada had not only the influence of sadhusanga, which, as I say, may affect us at any point in our life. It does, knowingly or unknowingly, and knowingly at a certain point, unknowingly at a certain point, then it becomes knowingly. Hmm, and um, very powerful. It takes us from material life, really, to spiritual life. But he had that in his childhood as well. As just a young child, he had real um, powerful sadhu sangha. He, the implication of this verse here today is that he was very, very young, five, six 
years old, something like that, when this happened. And then the sadhus left, and he was traumatized by that in a spiritual way. He had took so much advantage of their association that he was spiritually traumatized by the separation from them. He had to live his life in that way, given that he was taken care of by his mother, and he was young, and uh, he didn't really have the option to run off with them, it would, it would seem. Hmm? He says that I was only, I was the only son of my mother, hmm? who was not only a simple woman, but she was a maidservant as well. Since I was her only offspring, she had no alternative for protection. She bound me with the tie of affection. Implication hmm. here is that he was the only son, and he was under the protection of his mother. Hmm. Um, but, as he says next, she wanted to look after my maintenance properly, but because she was not independent, she was not able to do anything for me. Here he says, he wants to say that she was a maidservant, so she was um, living in the house of Brahmins as a, as a servant there, and she didn't have an independent lifestyle, independent income and to provide and so forth, so her she wanted to provide comprehensively, but her situation was compromised. Who his father was, he didn't know, and, and so on. She had that affection to take care of him, but it was in, in every way, but she wasn't equipped materially in every way to do that adequately on the one hand, but now also here he waxes philosophically about it and says, the world is under the full control of the Supreme Lord, therefore... Everyone is like a wooden doll in the hands of a puppet master. So while it was true materially regarding her situation, being a dependent situation itself, and there, thereby not fully independent to take care of him in every way that she might have liked to, he goes on to say, and in reality, here we find now the influence of the sadhus on him, that uh, it, it appears as he reflects back on this, even in his early life now, he had a philosophical eye with which to think about such such things. What is that? And for that matter, no one is independent in, in providing. Everyone is uh, has some will. As I said before, the Gaudiya position with regard to free will and determinism would be in modern uh, terminology called a compatibilist position, in which we find that there is a compatibility between free will and the fact that not a blade of grass moves without the will of God. In other words, we have some will, but we cannot, in a simple sense, we cannot realize it without his sanction. So there's some sense of will within the fact, the idea that everything is determined um, in, a, in a larger sense. So he's kind of speaking about that here. She had a will to protect me, but and again, she's not in charge. We're all just puppets in the hands of fate, destiny, of the will of God that's being played out, and we're finding out about it in due course, and, and uh, so on. Hmm. When I was a mere child of five years old, I lived in a Brahmana school, and I was dependent on my mother's affection and had, had no experience in different lands. 
So he heard the teachings from the sadhus and so forth, but his ex- actual experience of the world that they described as being basically a transformation of the modes of nature. Hmm? Not something that you could rely on. Hmm? Uh, something constantly in flux, a magic show of appearances and so forth. As you can imagine, they discussed with him, they described him philosophically. Uh, but he had no direct experience as a five-year-old boy, for one, and as a as a homeboy uh, in early life, like most of us are, as well of the world. Hmm? Some people argue, of course, that without experience of the world, sufficiently, how can you give it up? Daksha argued like this with regard to Nard's um, preaching to his, what was it, thousand sons or something, ten thousand sons, that uh, that, that they, whom, whom they were sent to. They were sent by Daksha to Nard to get a little education, but Nard told them, give up the world, and it's futile, and so forth. And this in the context of bhakti, as we would expect from Narada. And they did, and Daksha, who didn't have a clear understanding of bhakti, given that he was a Vaishnava Parati, as it turns out, what kind of understanding of bhakti will you have if you're a Vaishnava Parati? The history of Daksha includes the, his offense to Mahadev Shiva, the husband of his daughter, Parvati. Hmm? This certainly clouds one's ability to really feel and thereby know and understand what is bhakti. Hmm? To bite the hand that feeds you. Hmm? Bhakti is a nourishing meal and it comes through the hands of the Vaishnav. If we go against that, then this is this is a sin of the flesh, or sin of the soul rather than a sin of the flesh as material desires and their dep- the departure that they they sometimes foster in us from the straight and narrow, so to speak, a path of bhakti. Hmm? Aparada is another thing. It's, it's uh, uh, going against the very path itself. So this was Dox's position. If we couldn't appreciate Nara's sermons to his sons that caused them to, to give up material life without having had any experience of it. They didn't even have any negative impetus. Hmm? You know, in youth it looks like we've got a lot of prospects and so forth. The world is all very inviting to youth. Youth is very popular. Hmm? Everybody wants the youth. Naturally, our God is ever youthful. Hmm? This is how he's experienced by, by, the, by, the, by the sadhus, by the acharyas. So... Prabhupada used to say, well, you know, the first class disciple, he understands what to do without being told. The second class disciple, she understands what to do after being told. And the third class disciple, he understand, doesn't understand even after being told what to do. In other words, it's an anticipation of what the guru may want, what's expected of me and so forth. If we're tuned in enough and we can read that. We can learn to read that. If we can't, at least when told what to do, what to expect, we should respond favorably. But there are those who, who uh, even upon being told, don't. And, and uh, 
That's unfortunate, no doubt. At any rate, Narada here, he had no experience of the world. Again, Daksha's misunderstanding is is also understandable. Uh, not only that it, but it comes from Vaishnava Parad, but the general understanding is, is something like this. I was once told by a lady devotee, as a sannyasi, that if you never had a romantic relationship, how can you understand? what is Radha and Krishna's love. This was many years ago. The devotee tried to preach to me like that, actually. She wasn't really asking me. She was kind of telling me. Hmm? I told her, ask, ask Rupa Goswami about that. <laughs> ask Chaitanya Mahaprabhu about that. Nowadays, there are those that philosophize in a sophisticated way like this. So that this is their, But it's ultimately... Their bottom line and the Achilles heel of their whole <laughs> preaching as well, without experience of romantic love. How can you really understand Bhakti Rasa, Madurasa? Hmm? Of course, Bhakti Rasa is only one of five Rasas. Do we have to have that to experience all the other Rasas as well? Or, or do we just have to have child, have to have children to have understood Vatsalya Rasa? Do we have to have wrestled to understand? with friends to understand uh, Sakyarasa and so forth. This is a very mundane idea. Hmm. What we have to understand to understand rasa, Jiva Goswami is taught, is that if there's any rasa in the material world, it's one, vibhatsa. Vibhatsa is one of the secondary rasas. Of Out of twelve, there are five primary and seven secondary. Vibhatsa is the rasa of disgust. <laughs> It comes up in Krishna Leela also. It's a strong emotion, disgust. I may be the friend of Krishna, but sometimes disgust may arise in some context also. Take a powerful position in my devotional, emotive, rasic life and so forth. But he said it in kind of a humorous way, if you will, but a meaningful way that the only rasa, if there's any rasa, in material life, it is vibhatsa. Hmm? Uh, the disgust that arises from absorbing ourselves in material life, the tag, if you will, that comes from bog. When we try to enjoy, then after we consume the object as much as is possible, and only in a limited way is it possible, materially speaking, uh, to even get close to a thing, uh, then we, we, in due course, we want to renounce the thing as well. Vibhatsa. Mm. So some disgust. Well, no. Uh, Prabhupada would also, also, also taught us that the, f- the first uh, class person learns by hearing without the necessity of experiencing that which, which one has heard. If one has faith, and in due course good experience from that, that that fortifies that faith. For example, if you have faith that your mother cares about you when you're a child, and she says, "Don't touch the fire; that will burn you." 
then you don't touch the fire. If you don't have as much faith, maybe you touch the fire and get burnt, and then you you learn by experience. So he also used to say in this way: the first class person learns by hearing, second class person learns by experience, the third class person, even after experiencing, doesn't learn. <laughs> so Narada didn't have experience of the world. Um, but he's about to get some. It, see, it, it seems, of course, from the, uh, particularly from the commentary of Vishnu Chakravarti that he that he learned without experience, having developed considerably in bhakti and even to the point of praying. As we've said, this is the way in which uh, Vishnu Chakravarti has analyzed these these chapters. There is another way of an an- analyzing them as well. The Jiva Goswami has taken a proper to follow that line, but in each case. Uh, it would it would seem that Nard had considerable um, standing in bhakti, if not prem, as Vishwanath likes to think, or likes to uh, understand the verses. Um, deep experience, nonetheless, without having to experience firsthand uh, that the world, while appearing as a bowl of cherries, is just the pits, as they say. Hmm. Uh, of course, you know there is. Having understood that, there is. Then that's that's a, an understanding in the context of bhakti, the nature of the world, and then there, of course there is the entering in, re-entering in the world, with the understanding that enables one to fully interact with sense objects without their having an effect. Upon him, like if you were to take out the, the poison out of the fangs of a serpent, something like that. Hmm? Um, that that doesn't mean to say that that uh, bhakti rasa constitutes first understanding the difference between material and spiritual love, then entering into the material world with that understanding and carrying on like. Um, in every way, and an ordinary human being interacting with sense objects. This would be something that the sahajyas would try to follow up with, the great sahajyas. can't go into that in depth here, but at any rate, the point is that Narada had, uh, at this point in his description, no experience, but he's about to get hit with some uh, he says, uh, I had no experience of different lands, but once, su- su- suddenly in my life, my poor mother, while going out in the night to milk a cow, hmm, was bitten in the leg by a serpent, influenced by Kala. Kripana Kala Kodita, by the influence of time. This is fate, destiny, the hand of God. Is the implication? He's seeing everything as the hand of God. This is a terrible fate for a young boy that his mother, and he's kind of almost like an orphan child, and he has no father. He's with his mother. She's dependent upon the family she lives with, who she serves, and and, and so forth. And now she has died in the night by a serpent's bite. And he's looking at it. He he had learned to look at it philosophically. 
says, what can be done? This, as I've learned, this is the influence of time. These things can happen. It will happen to everybody. In due course, the time came. So the way he responded to this, of course, is, is indicative of how well he had heard from the sages and how well he had learned about the nature of the world without having directly experienced it. Hmm? He says, I took this as the special mercy of the Lord who always desires benediction for his devotees. And so thinking, I started for the north. The implication is he started for the, for the Himalayas. Hmm? He started out into the, into the places like this. Hmm? Out of as far out of the world, if you will, as you can go while being in the world, hmm? to get closer to nature and solitude and, uh, and and away from the hustle and the bustle and the worldliness and so forth, he set off in pursuit of that which the sages had engaged him in. Hmm. And here again, he shows his his um, uh, the extent the extent to which he had understood what the sages had taught him. This is a kind of a nice philosophical lesson here. He says he, he's looking at the misfortune in his life, which is immense. This is a huge misfortune in his life. I mean, everyone would think, "Oh, how how unfortunate!" How and they would even question the belief in God. How could God allow such a young child, dependent, in other words, his mother is working for the family, so his mother dies. Well, he he was living on the affection of his mother. We don't know that the people who maintained her shared the same affection in the same measure. Who's going to take care of him? He's just a child. And some people would think, you know, for, for, for how could God let this happen to a child? That is, and he was a devotee. <laughs> also, he had become a devotee, and Krishna took away his mother's uh, his mother's life. This is maybe I don't believe in Krishna. You know, he doesn't. Uh, he said he said if you surrender to him, he takes care of you. Nard is surrendering, follow the, following the way of the Vaishnavas, and, and this calamity befalls him. And, but here we find he took it in a very different way. It only confirmed his theological sensibilities, his philosophical sensibilities. Hmm? He had understood from the sages the nature of the world, fate, time, destiny. Everyone has their time and so forth. There's, a, there's an overarching meaning to that. There's a silver lining in it all. Hmm? for the devotee if he can uh, uh, apply himself or herself in, in bhakti appropriately that will be seen in due course so he couldn't exactly see it but he, but he thought of it in that way as he describes here hmm? yeah. the Lord always desires the benediction of his devotees I took this as his special mercy there's a famous verse in the Bhagavatam that Srila Prabhupada liked, used to like to cite. Hmm? And he liked to cite it because he felt it had uh, very much significance in relation to his own life. 
he saw in his own life that he, as a as a householder, tried to maintain his family dutifully as a religious uh, person as well, and as a Gaudiya Vaishnav in due course, and he took initiation from Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, but it didn't work out. Hmm? He tried to take care, he tried, he had a little a business, a chemistry, chemical business, a pharmacy business. He made days liniment or ointment liniment hmm? and soaps and things I think he made and it uh, uh, was a kind of a home enterprise, but it wasn't sufficient to satisfy the family members in terms of their, their uh, sense of material need. And of course he he had a need spiritually that seemed to get in the way of his ability to really take the business to its height. Hmm? A love for the Bhagavatam and so forth. In his absence from home on a business trip, one day his wife sold the Bhagavatam, his Bhagavatam. And books weren't as readily available in those days as they are now. She sold it for tea biscuits. Hmm. So when he came home and he found that his wife had preferred tea biscuits over the Bhagavatam. He just couldn't relate to that. This was kind of uh, the last straw or something like that. He left the world, the surprise of everyone in the neighborhood. He just kind of walked out. Hmm? Um, and he felt that really that, that, that he was unsuccessful in his family life. He tried to earn a living and, and so forth, but Krishna had taken everything away from him. Hmm. And in following the course of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, instead of having a happy family, Vaishnav life with children who are all going to be devotees, uh, you know, every mother, every father tends to think their, their son is going to be a devotee, and a great devotee, and once one of my god sisters wrote to Prabhupada and said, Prabhupada, I feel at my service to Krishna is raising my child hmm, as a devotee. And Prabhupada said, that's not enough. <laughs> uh, you have to, you, you have, in you have to hear and chant. You have to practice. You can't just raise somebody else as a devotee. <laughs> then you're off the hook, something like that. Hmm? And how much will you be able to, for that matter, if you don't attend to your own practice sufficiently and set an example? Hmm? That's the real teaching, isn't it? teach by example, that will have a more compelling influence than the dogma that you might, right, hmm. speak out. <laughs> so children have a wisdom too, right, and look and see, and look to see the difference between the walk and the talk, they have some ability uh, to sort that out. Hmm. So. Uh, this verse comes in in, in, uh, in the latter part of the Bhagavatam, where um, Yudhisthira asks uh, the question, I believe, of Narada, that how is it that Shiva's devotees are full of material opulence, although Shiva's dressed in ashes and living without any such material opulence? And Vishnu's devotees, Krishna's devotees, are often bereft, materially speaking, yet he is very opulent. Hmm? How does this, how to harmonize this? And Nard explained that uh, Shiva's 
Ashutosh, he's very generous, so people want material things. He gives them, he's easily pleased, he gives them what they want. Hmm. But uh, Krishna's devotees, they're actually asking for something more more dear to him than what Shiva's devotees, who are opulently situated, tend to ask of him. They're asking through bhakti for the very to enter the life of Bhagavan, hmm? not to get something from him. They're asking to get him. So he arranges to give himself to them, and in the context of doing so, if they become very dear to him in, by, by the measure of their petition for such, he arranges to ruin their material life, to make it more difficult, hmm? to take things away from them, that they are forced to depend upon him. And this is his special mercy. So we find Narada or here voicing that. Obviously, he could tell, explain that to Yudhisthira in a compelling way, because as we see here, that was his own experience. Hmm? Krishna took away his mother in his childhood, and there he was. There were, the implication is here. I had, I had to depend only on God, and with that in mind, as we hear. I left home and see how he depended. After my departure, I passed through many flur. He just left without the funeral, hmm? observing such rituals and so forth. And uh, he just walked out. He thought, everything I've been taught here is confirmed hmm? with regard to material life. Hmm? And I've seen it in, in a powerful way. Hmm? So now what has been taught to me hmm, that is not apparent to the naked material eye, hmm, I have seen also with my own eye. And now if we take this as a development to Prem rather than he already has Prem, as Jiva Goswami has taken the text, we can say, now let me go and pursue those things that I can't see, hmm, that require divine fully divine eyes to see. Partially divine eyes w reveals what was right before me that I couldn't see the nature of the world for what it really is. Having seen it with the eyes of Shastra, Shastra Chakshu, having heard from Shastra, I can now look at the world and see this is what it's actually like. I thought it was one thing, it's something quite different. Then the Shastra and the Sadhus also speak about something it requires fully spiritual eyes to see. Krishna, Krishna Leela. Hmm? He has tremendous now impetus to pursue that greater balance. As I said, mukti, liberation in bhakti context, in Bhagavad context means understanding the nature of the world for what it is and understanding the nature of God's world, if you will, his Leela, hmm? that I might enter, enter there, both things. Now he wants to enter the Leela. He's going to have to conduct himself in such a way hmm, that that which the sages also talk about, like I like to say about the Gita, the Gita is not a book of, that is about believing. It's about the nature of being. It speaks theoretically about the nature of being by way of distinguishing between consciousness and matter, emphasizing the subjective aspect of life and its potentiality and possibilities that lie there and so forth and how energy should be invested in that, how to invest energy in that, 
Hmm? And, and thereby how the objective world of matter is not something we should invest our, our, sel- our subjective selves in, and so forth. And if you listen to it, it of course, it, there's a lot of sense to that. Hmm? It's a dissertation on the nature of being with an emphasis on the nature of consciousness. And uh, really, if we study that philosophical emphasis in the Gita, like I like to say, I like uh, Kipling's prayer poem, If, that so much, uh, so beautifully depicts the, the, the um, superhumanness, if you will, of, of the Gita, yet a superhumanness that we all know if we hear it is possible. That equanimity of mind that is central to the yogic um, experience, that detachment, that again equanimity, that you can, if you can walk amongst uh, kings and not lose touch with the common folk, something like that. Uh, among other things, it's a nice poem. It, it speaks about that, that, that it, it's like nobody's like that, but if you hear about it, you think, it's how we all should be. Hmm? We think it because we are human, and the humanness, our, our, the self, this consciousness is starting, as I like to say, come out. It's starting to surface. We're feeling what our potential as a, as a unit of consciousness is that, that transcends the limits of our humanness, but at the same time, is the full measure of our humanness because human life gives us the chance to pursue what we are hmm, beyond being a human being. That's the, it's the vehicle for that as opposed to the less complex forms of life. Hmm. So when you hear that in the Gita, it's, it's, it's so profound. As I say, it's a dissertation on the nature of a being from a, from a, from a, 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 a spiritual perspective, hmm, positing a supernatural, and it's you. Consciousness transcends the natural world, and and you can experience the fullness of that, and you are a unit of it, and so forth. And in the context of that, as I say, revealing the nature of the material world, how it's here today and gone tomorrow, and problematic in so many ways, and the pursuance of its of its carrot, if you will, hmm? that turns out to be never a square meal, and so on and so forth. So this is a very beautiful uh, kind of dissertation on the nature of being that doesn't ask you really to believe as much as it resonates, if you have sufficient sukriti, I guess, with, uh, with what you're really about. And then, of course, there's the theology of the Gita. I'm the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and so on and so forth. But you have good reason to believe in that, or, to, or, or the implication is not even that you should believe in that, but that you should conduct yourself philosophically hmm, in accordance with the phil- philosophy of the Gita. And this will form a, 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 a foundation, a, a different kind of foundation on which your life is being built that will enable you to experience the theology of the Gita. After all, again, the theology of the Gita is that you're a unit of consciousness, and consciousness is not only sat, but ananda. And so if there is to be, an, if ananda is in your constitution, and it's the primary, it's the reason you, you exist, hmm? 
we exist, we can know that we exist, and we exist for a reason, and the reason is to love. This is Ananda. Then, that the implication of that, of playing that out philosophically and living one's life accordingly, is that there must be a significant other in the realm of consciousness. Because Ananda will, we, can, we, we may, as I like to say, love to exist, but if we exist to love, hmm, which is the bhakti orientation and understanding of our constitution as Satchitananda, then there has to be a significant other in the other world. There has to be an, another consciousness. Chetu Chetananam, Nityo Nityanam, Chetanas Chetananam, Eko Bahunam, Yovadati Kaman. As the sutras say, there is the one, and there are the many. Nityo Nityanam, Chetanas Chetananam, Eko Bahunam, Eko Bahunam, Yovadati Kaman. And the one maintains the many. Hmm? And that doesn't mean just materially, because the many are not just a material fabrication, hmm? as the Dwaitans would like us to think. No, the many are uh, also eternal, of an eternal nature. And they are maintained in the consciousness realm by love, by praying. Hmm? They are nourished by that, by the one. Hmm? Indeed, the many arise out of the one for no reason, which means lokavatu uh, lilakaivalyam. The world is arising out of love. The one becomes many. We are ch children of the love of Vishnu. So, uh, <laughs> so there has to be, if you th think about it, there has to be a significant other. There has to be Bhagwan. Hmm? And there has to be Krishna. If you really then study Ananda, because Krishna is that manifestation of the divinity where Ananda takes precedence to the extreme. Hmm? Therefore, Prema Madhurya, he's called. He has Prema Madhurya. He's surrounded by devotees imbued with with sweet love that affords intimacy that really plays itself out in the full sense of loving exchanges. Therefore, dasya, sakya, vatsalya, madhurya, not simply awe and reverence or neutral love, shanta, dasya, vaikuntam, and so forth. So, so at any rate, Nard is now going, he's like living, you can, the Gita, Philosophically, this brings one into the world of consciousness, acquaints you with yourself, and and that acquaintance is vital to understanding the significant other, if you will, that is constituted of consciousness. If you want to enter the fire, you have to become a unit of fire. You have to become a spark yourself. You can't throw something that's not fire into the fire and expect it to endure. Hmm? So the philosophy of the Gita, therefore we have Bhakti Vedanta hmm, guiding us. We have a head, uh, we, you know, the, we, we have a, a, a foundation in Vedanta that this Bhakti is arising out of. Hmm? So there's some 
discrimination between matter and spirit does come about in the context of bhakti. And that, as it does, to measure it does, it really enables us to understand what is bhakti rasa. Hmm. You can theorize all, all you like, but this is... This is this is a real. Therefore, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur used to say, "Bhajan, a life of real bhajan, hmm. internal life." Small scorpion just crawled into your hand. Which hand? God's will. <laughs> Hope he doesn't bite. Um, uh, what did I say? Bhajan. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur said, real bhajan is performed on the platform of Advaigyan Tattva. Hmm? On the canvas of Advaigyan Tattva. Non-duality it means. Non-duality. So, hmm? Oh. Put that back. On the platform of... <laughs> well, that is mentioned by Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur. Such actions may be ap- appropriate. <clears throat> and somewhere in his Bhagavatam commentary, I have to get the reference for you. Uh, it's like the, uh, the killing of the serpent that Prabhupada experienced under the order of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur that he questioned about and then later found confirmation for in, in the scriptures. It's a well-known story. But anyway, that great Bhakti Siddhanta relevant, and back to our point, said, Bhajan is performed on the platform of Bhagyan Tattva. In other words, come, in the context of Bhakti, as we come, Nadanam, Nadanam, Nasundurim, Kovitam, Bhajagadishakamaye, as we have no wants in the material world and want only Bhakti, hmm? we're actually coming on the spiritual platform and then there's a meeting with Krishna. Now there's an attachment comes. In Baba Bhakti, there's the meeting with Krishna. This will come here. He's going to meet Krishna. He's gone out to meet Krishna. He's gone out to meet the theological person and turn him into a real person. Hmm? Through the through the through churning of the of the instructions of the sages that constitute uh, bhakti. Hmm? So I'll read a little bit. We'll conclude with this. After my departure, I passed through many flourishing metropolises, towns, villages, animal farms, mines, agricultural lands, valleys, flower gardens, nursery gardens, and natural forests. I passed through the hills and mountains full of reservoirs of various minerals like gold, silver, and copper, and through tracts of land with reservoirs of water filled with beautiful lotus flowers fit for the denizens of heaven, decorated with bewildered bees and singing birds. I then passed alone through many forests of bamboo, sharp grass, weeds, and caves, which were very difficult to go through alone. I visited deep, dark, and dangerously fearful forests, which were the play yards of snakes, owls, and jackals. Thus traveling, I felt tired, both bodily and mentally, and I was both thirsty and hungry. So I took a bath in a river and also drank water. By contacting water, I got relief 
for my exhaustion. After that, under the shadow of a banyan tree, in an uninhabited forest, I began to meditate upon the Supreme Soul situated within, using my intelligence as I had learned from the liberated souls. So we'll conclude with that and continue our discussion in our next meeting. But here, to summarize very briefly, first of all, there's a, there's a very beautiful poetic Sanskrit description of the, the worlds of Nard's experience. And uh, as I said, he's now getting, the implication is he experienced everything as well. Hmm? Uh, the measure of his faith is tested by his experience. He was not distracted by any. He went through towns, villages. He, this, he saw the world that he hadn't seen before. And it didn't distract him. And, and, and not only did the, did the desi- apparently ostensibly desirable things not distract him, but the danger of the forests filled with wild beasts, elephants and tigers and so forth, uh, which were fearful, didn't uh, didn't bother him either. He sat beneath a tree in such a forest. This is where he decided to to, to stay, hmm? and there he began meditating on Bhagavan, trying to, as I say, make that theological person turn him into a into a, into a, a, a real person, a person more real than himself in terms of his sense of I am the son of this maidservant and so forth. And as we'll see, not only did that happen, but his own real personhood hmm, was realized as well hmm, as the great Narada now standing before Vyas and instructing him confidentially by sharing his heart as has been asked by his faithful disciple Vyas. Are there any questions? I was wondering what comment you would have on the fact that in the Vedas it said that you take sannyas with your wives and um, uh, mother's permission, which Shankaracharya seemed to observe with a little trick. And Mahaprabhu also talked it over with uh, his wife and husband and uh, mother before taking sannyas. And I was wondering who that statement is uh, is for, and what uh, how important it really is, considering how Prabhupada took sannyas and just left. Is that is what uh, the mother had? So you're asking about the idea that before taking sannyas, one should work it out with the family, and so on and so forth. And and apparently, you 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 said that Shankar did that. Yeah, he was 12 years old or something, and his mother wouldn't let him take sannyas, so he pretended to be drowning in a river, and he said, Mother, please, before I, I die, drive me the wish, of, let me die as a sannyas. And she said, okay, and then he was like, he just, he just walked out of the river. <laughs> I see, well, I, I, I don't think there's any real binding scriptural mandate in that regard. As far as possible, we should try to do that. Hmm? But if it's not possible, then we can, even Shankar, who you're citing, obviously was quite deceptive in the matter. Um, 
there's a story that this brings to mind. It's not entirely analogous, but somewhat that uh, Keshav Maharaj told, Bhakti Pragyan Keshav Maharaj, uh, godbrother of Srila Prabhupada, when he was a young young boy in the Mott, he was apparently quite young when he joined, uh, word came that his mother was dying. Hmm? And so he hid himself in the Mott because he knew that if Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur found out, then he would say, oh, you go, you know, and and you know, spend the last days of your mother with her and so forth. And in India, you know, like I said before, if you you want to, it's hard to move around. Sometimes it's throngs of people and so forth trying to get on the train or whatnot. If you just say, mother, mother sick, mother sick, everybody lets go, moves away, lets you go to the front, you know, mother sick. Oh. <laughs> so there's a real, real uh, appreciation of the mother principle in this culture, but uh, at any rate, uh, he hid, and then she passed away without his going there. And when it, he was found out for this, he was questioned about it, and he said, I knew that if I went, her last would, request would be that I marry, and then I couldn't, that I, that I couldn't go against her request that I marry, so, and the, and the Guru Maharaj would send me there, so I didn't, I didn't go. Gurmaj appreciated it on a higher level, so uh, there may be general type of rules and suggestions for the sake of preserving the society and so forth, which has its merit and all, but these are relative considerations that for the most part may follow along in parallel line with spiritual absolute considerations. But wherever in that course the relative comes in contrast to the absolute, which may happen, then we will um, move in the direction of the absolute consideration at the cost of violating the relative. The absolute consideration cannot be violated. The relative is relative. Therefore, it can. Hmm. Another question? Yes. Um, Sadhu the devotees that Narada met with Narada, um, it seems like the recipient has to be ready in some way. Like these devotees were going all over and were creating Naradas everywhere they went. So I'm thinking Ado Shadha, that, that comes first. But although it seems like Sadhu Sangha plants that shraddha, that faith in someone, but it seems like they need to be ready before that can happen. Mm -hmm. You want me to comment on that? Yes, it's something like this. If you take a plant, a seed, and you put it in the ground, and you water it, and you give it sun, and you come out in the garden, and it's popping above the ground, you say, oh, here, there's the eggplant, it started. Hmm? Right? That's its formal beginning, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a success. But un, unseen to us is underneath the ground the germination and the roots going down and so forth that begins. So, 
what's not visible is as a result of sadhusanga hmm, is nonetheless the beginning of bhakti and that is what we call agyata sakriti and gyata sakriti it comes from sadhusanga also hmm? unknowingly we contact we're in touch with uh, sadhus and we we are influenced by them hmm? and at some point then we are we are knowingly involved with sadhus but we don't have faith yet we might think i'd like to go listen to the that Swami speak, you know, he, he's very interesting, and uh, and uh, next week I might decide to go, you know, somewhere else, and uh, and, and so forth. And then from agyata, we know unknowingly being involved, to knowingly be part with partial knowing being involved, faith comes eventually with the buildup of this, and all of this is a result of sadhu sangha. So there's initial initial sadhu sangha that precedes faith. And then at a certain point in the context of sadhu sangha. The faith comes, and we call the faith the beginning. Hmm? And then there's the second stage of sadhusanga that fosters the faith that has arisen hmm, with it, through instructions and so on and so forth. So there's some invisible... Yeah, so so Nard was in a position, we know from his previous life, he had contact with the Sankirtan, as he describes in the seventh canto and so forth. And um, even though he was... Uh, didn't didn't take it, uh, take advantage of it entirely unless he had it. Hmm? And in this life, he was born as a maidservant. As a result of that, not taking advantage, even offending the sankirtan, but also as a result of that contact, he got further association, and he was more disposed uh, as a result of the previous association to take advantage of it in his life as a maidservant, son of a maidservant. So, yes. The, the the recipient has of sadhu sangha has to be in a certain position for us to recognize that there is an effect. Hmm? But if we know the philosophy, we know there is an effect, whether they rec- whether it's it's recognizable, visible, or not. Anything else? And people are taking sannyas. Oh yeah, he's asking, you know, scripture. It's relative. Yeah. Krantara Srimad Bhagavatam Kijai. Kaur Bhakti Brindaki. Panchakalpatam.